Youthscape podcast, a podcast for Christians who work with young people. Everybody and welcome back to another episode of the Youthscape podcast with me, Rachel Gardner, and as always, my colleague Martin Saunders. Welcome, Martin Saunders. You went through so many different so voices. So many there. emotions, yeah. just all the feels, people. You've all had the feels. you've had a difficult time recently, haven't you? I've had a difficult time. T- I'm going us, straight in. Tell us that. the story. Well, I have created a bit of a reputation among the young people who I work with in Blackburn that it is deeply unsafe to get into any moving vehicle with me, which is based on no actual real evidence at all, except about two weeks ago. So we do this thing where we, we regularly take, we try and take young people away for days and then we build up to a night away and we build up for satellites in the summer. Yeah, and it's yeah. a way of sort of helping them get used to being in a car with me, I think really, uh, and camping. So uh, we had a lovely dance an event called Abide, brilliant event. So come on, young people, I'm going to drive the big minibus that's like a school bus. Got consent forms, all aboard, all aboard. And uh, we are hardly anywhere down the road. We get onto a motorway and black, black smoke billows into the This is not the first time, is it? No, this is not the first time. And I, I don't know why I keep hiring the same bus. Yeah. It's so cheap, but it always breaks down on me. They're always like, oh, no, it's, it's an emoji Mercedes engine. It's fine. It's fine. Uh, so I've never seen the youth workers in my life move that quick. Hey, everyone out, everyone out. So then we're stood on the side of the motorway. And you know, Martin, you've been a youth worker long enough. Part of me was like, this is the stuff that memories are made it's of. Not the bit where I, they, I nearly, they Once nearly, they're safe. yeah. Once they're safe. But uh, do we now try and get to abide, or do we have a lot of fun, like yeah. walking back through the fields and going and getting a cup of tea from somewhere and trudging back? Because actually, that's that actually is what you do youth ministry for, yes. isn't it? For those moments. And then I saw the faces of these young people and thought. No, this won't. No, they won't stay safe in a field. They'll be chasing all the cows. So then, um, do you want to hear the amazing story? Go on. Of course I do. So then I say to the young people, listen, God has got us. You know, we're out of the van. Everyone's alive. Check your limbs. Everyone's alive. God cares about He's going to get us to abide safely. Again, thinking, why am I saying this? I'm setting myself up for a fan. So I say, I'm just going to stick my thumb out again. You know, I'm not Wait promoting. I'm not promoting hitchhiking. Did not see where this was going. There were youth workers there. were having a lot of fun. I'm going to stick my thumb out. Let's see the first mini first minibus that stops oh, so for us. You only thumbed minibuses. Well, I, I, I wasn't even thinking. I just stuck my thumb out. A yellow minibus pulls up and it is a vicar that I have recently met with seven spaces. No. So could do a few trips (gasps) around the Paris. Everyone's happy. She had business insurance, all consent. Everything was all good to go. You can imagine all the flurry of texts and WhatsApp. Everything was all covered. It's all good. But isn't that incredible? It's amazing. Young people, they just looked at me like, oh, God is real. And you know what you're like? I've done so much in your life. Like we've done so much that it's actually a better proof yes. that God is real than me doing a very dodgy, sticking my thumb out. Yes. And then and a yelling minibus stops. But isn't that beautiful? Well, you've won me over, I mean, frankly. I, I'm ready to give my life to Jesus. <laughs> that was amazing. I mean, bless the little hearts. Didn't engage with the whole you thing. Should have taken through the fields. Yeah, we should have stayed in the fields. Oh, wow. But really, what a brilliant story. And you, have you hired a minibus for satellites yet? Um, so this is the, this is the tension in the team because I'm like, 
I'll drive the school bus. And they're like, no, you won't. And I'm like, but I love it. So I'm going to have to relinquish that. I'm going to have to book an actual coach, an actual coach driver. That'd be boring. <sighs> well, there's no risk of breaking down and having to sleep in lay-bys. Yeah, but then it's it's not so much fun. I do sound like a youth worker from the 60s, don't I? That doesn't realise. I'm not even sure even if that. so safe. They are so safe in our care. We are so above board, but we have You don't fun. electrocute the kids, do you? No, like and that? it is all good and it's all good fun but um but it's brilliant but you are bringing young people to satellites this summer of course we are which is really exciting they are so excited and uh it's not too late to join us no so you can book yourself into the second satellites festival uh, from the 4th to the 8th of august at the glorious bath and west showground in shepton are you excited about just the idea of shepton mallet I'm excited about there's a particular laundrette. All of you diehards, you'll remember the laundrette in the middle of Shepton Mallet. I'm excited about like, we should do a little reunion in that laundrette, that poor laundrette. Do you know something we've never talked about <clears throat> anywhere? We've never talked about. You and me are like, um, with the top and the tail. We're like the front and back of a pantomime horse. <laughs> I'm doing night one, you're doing night five. I had no idea I'm doing night five. Yeah, you're doing <gasps> night five. Am I? Yeah, I'm yeah. so excited about If this that. is me asking you, sorry, would you mind doing oh, night five? I'd love to do night five. I'd love to. <laughs> Genuinely thought what I'd already asked you. an absolute blinding honour. That oh, is great. such an honour. How fun. Uh, the, what, the reason I'm bringing young people back again, because it is, I mean, like getting all the staff, getting all the tent stuff, I mean, it is a big job at bringing young people to satellites. But you just know the moment you have them on the coach and you're heading to, to satellites, the beautiful thing about it is that you just know that there'll be an acceleration of, of relationship, of them developing kind of confidence in the group. And what I love about satellites, which happened last year, was there are no assumptions made. Like right. it's incredibly dynamic and safe and kind for young mm. people. And actually two of our leaders recently said to me, because we went to a couple of festivals over the summer and um, different sort of conferences type of things. And they said, I really like satellites because I understood what people were saying. And I just thought, actually, that you can't take that for granted. The young people felt they were taken on a journey. They understood what was being asked of them. They understood what it was about. And they and and so when they stepped forward, when they said yes, when they got involved, they knew what they were doing. And I think that is so precious as a youth pastor when you bring your young mm. people to feel actually what I'm bringing them to is this is good. This is kind. This is run by youth workers. This will be a great space for them. So yes, we will be there with bells on. One of the exciting things <laughs> for me, just kind of taking a bird's eye view, has been hearing about all the baptisms. Yeah, Because there have been so yes. many young people who got baptised. Oh. Now, whatever your tradition, like yes. you may, that may not be your tradition, but, but as one marker of how young people haven't just made a spur-of-the-moment decision to follow Jesus, but mm. have, have made a decision, then gone back, then after a period of weeks or months, you know, then decided, oh, I want to make a public yeah. statement of my faith. That for me is is so precious and so exciting. So, um, so yeah, so what, that's what we're going for. We want more baptisms. What a wonderful um, thing to think about. So you, you can find out more about uh, satellites at the website, wearesatellites.com, and you will uh, find details about the program and, the, and I probably will have asked you to speak by the time this goes live and uh, and, and all the rest so um, please do check that out um, I'm also very excited about today's guest yes I am too so um, it's not it's not often that I say this I as the moment I started talking to Alonzo Paul um, I he immediately became one of my fam- favorite people seriously he's so full of the Lord and Aww. life and 
wisdom. And you're going to get all of that in the next few minutes. Um, he's got a very dramatic testimony. So it doesn't. this doesn't go where you think it's going to go. Is it better than my bus story? I, I don't know, but may, I maybe, possibly. I it's think not, it is. We're not handing out prizes. It's not a competition. It's okay. It's not a competition. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but he has got an amazing testimony. And then he takes on one of the biggest questions of all which is you know is god inconsistent in the mm. bible um so it, be prepared for some deep theology uh but this is the first time i met alonzo paul i've only known him for about five minutes he's one of my favorite people <laughs> Uh, Alonzo Paul joins me now. Hello. Hello, Martin. How are you, bro? I'm I'm good. Thank you for for joining me. We 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 just got to know each other a little bit before we started recording, and I made the unforgivable error of asking, forming a question in this way: Are you are you an American? Uh, why why would I do that? What a mistake! So uh, <laughs> you're not you're not an American, are you? No, Canadian brother. Um, and you said every, every... It's all good. I forgive you. You're helping, you're helping my sanctification process, <laughs> you know, of just like learning to forgive, love. Um, yeah. And you have this every time a British person asks you where you're from, right? They always do this. A hundred percent. Usually I wear a nice Canadian hat with some sort of like Canadian, you know, identification just in case. I find I get much better treatment over here if people know I'm Canadian. So that's an interesting phenomenon. Totally understand that. But if you could just walk around, I mean, you're wearing a baseball cap now. If you could have just put a, like a Canadian flag on it. A hundred percent. That would have. Next podcast episode. <laughs> Next time. <laughs> uh, brilliant. I'll see if we can get one. When we have the photo for this show, I'll see if Dave, our producer, can actually put a Canadian flag, you know, on your just right over my face on your face yeah. or on your photo somewhere just so we're very clear um so look yeah. alonso tell us tell us a bit about yourself um yeah and your and your journey in ministry to this point yeah so first martin thank you so much for having me on uh this podcast i really appreciate it uh, a little bit about me uh i'm canadian as we just uh, uh discussed um i came over to this wonderful country in 2016 when I started studying theology at the school at the University of Oxford and also studying at ACA, the Oxford Center for Christian Apologetics. And after my first year, I joined uh, ACA, Oxford Center for Christian Apologetics, as a speaker. So going around giving various apologetic and evangelistic talks and then finished my degree where I went back to Canada, continued doing ministry. And uh, the CEO right now, Charlie Stiles, uh, gave me a call a few years um, into my time doing ministry in Canada. And he said, hey, like, what are you doing right now? I said, hey, I'm not doing too much right now. He says, why don't you come back to England? And I said, absolutely, bro. I'll buy the ticket right now. So I've been back for about eight months or so, seven months. And it's just such a joy. I love living here in Oxford. It's so enchanting. What what is it about the UK that that appeals to you? Like what do you what do you like? Because I I've never been to Canada. I always thought I would Bro, like to go, go there. I really want to go there, but I I worry I just want to stay there. <laughs> so what what why the UK? <laughs> we got heaps of you guys over there. Um, oh my gosh, maybe it's the history, maybe it's people, uh, the church over here. The church is very beautiful over here. I find 
I find that many times when I go to churches, um, there's this real sold out sort of ethos and nature within churches for evangelism, for the scriptures, for mission, those sorts of things, which in Canada, in certain places, you, you certainly will find that. But I don't find that same sort of level uh, back there. So I don't know, maybe I just like want whatever you guys have to like rub off on me a bit more. Um, so yeah, I just love it here. You are very welcome. Um, so you are you are an um, you're an apologist. Um, so let's just start with you first of all. What what is it? Let's just go back into the the moments that you decided actually you wanted to follow Jesus, that the Bible could be trusted. What was it? What convinced you? Oh my gosh! So generally, when people come to faith, in my experience, they're going to come via one of two routes: to be the intellectual side or the existential side. And for me, it was existential. So I was a drug addict. Uh, after my parents got divorced, I started using drugs as a coping mechanism. And then by the time I was in my late teens, I became a full-blown opiates addict. So I was in a really rough crowd, doing really rough things. I'd opened up a hip-hop clothing store, which was a front for selling crack cocaine uh, with a bunch of dudes, uh, all of them gangsters, drug dealers, that sort of thing. And uh, one night after the club, um, I was at a, a friend's house and this friend had a drug-induced schizophrenic episode, and the, so which means that he was hearing voices. And these voices told him to chop my head off. And so he took a big blade and tried. Oh, no. And by God's, by God's grace and mercy, um, it hit the bone back here. Oh. Uh, so if it was an inch lower, it would have like actually, you know, he hit me so hard when I made it to the hospital that I bled internally for three days in my brain. And this gave me a ton of time to reflect, as you would um, if you were sitting in a, in a hospital bed for three days, not really able to do anything. And just thinking uh, the life, the path that I've taken is, is probably not a good one. And I don't see this ending well. And it was at that point that my sister recently got saved. She gave her life to Jesus. And then she invited me to church. I put up a bit of a fight, but eventually I, I went. And it was seeing the beauty of who Jesus is from the scriptures, properly expounded, um, that just had this deep ring of truth to it. So it was that existential sort of approach into. And then afterwards, after my conversion, and after God helped me get off drugs and out of this bad neighborhood and so on, it was, I, I came across apologetics. And it was just so fascinated that there was such an um, intellectually credible side of Christianity that's not just a contemporary thing either, that just goes right back to the origin. You think of, of guys like Augustine and Aquinas and all of these boys. Um, I was just so fascinated. And I really haven't been able to um, quench that curiosity ever since. I'm, I'm still so fascinated by it. I mean, first of all, because this is just an audio podcast, people won't appreciate what was going on in my face as you told that story. <laughs> I was just absolutely <laughs> gasping um, and thinking how similar it was to my own conversion experience, of course. Um, oh, wow. But no, not at all. Um, but I, um, I, you know, normally you hear, you meet someone from the Oka, you expect them to tell you that they, you know, they, they read some brilliant 
piece piece of C.S. Lewis or something, and it just changed their life. Um, yeah. That's a very different story. <laughs> Do you think that gives you a little? This is quoted here. Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Does that give you a different kind of way in as an apologist? Like normally, it's quite dry, isn't it? Like apologetics is I quite think... a dry field, but you know that testimony is not dry. I think for me, just like having conversations with people, it gives me a perspective of I don't have some of the growing up in a religious community. Like, that's really wonderful. I don't want to like detract from that at all. But I, I think I've, I didn't grow up with some of the baggage of that. And so I can, I feel like from my perspective, I can sniff out things where like religiosity. And I think that that can, that can bring a sense of like realism when we're having these really deep conversations with, with people about really big questions. Mm. Yeah. We're going to get onto a tough question in a minute. Um, there's a specific tough question that we're going to talk about today. This season of the podcast, we're looking at tough questions for youth ministry every week. But before we do that, just I'm you've piqued my interest because you are you're writing a book and it's a book on a subject I don't think I've seen anyone write a book about before, certainly not uh, a, a theological book. So you yeah. want to just tell us a little bit about what's coming? Yeah, so I'm, I'm sure there are some. Well, I know that there are some uh, books that, that touch on this, but it's the topic is beauty in relation to the divine so i think that in this generation where we're so visually stimulated that there is something here to be mined apologetically when thinking about beauty or the aesthetics as they would say in philosophy and so i think um in my book i'm going to try to first outline some of the perspective of what have theologians from across the denominations so from uh, from Ethiopian Orthodox to Coptic to the Western tradition and so on. What, what have all of these really um, uh, prolific voices thought about beauty in relation to the to divine? And really what they think is that it's a signpost um, pointing towards it. So it's not a knockdown, airtight argument for the existence of God. It's more like a cherry on the top, sort of like C.S. Lewis's argument from desire, that sort of thing. And so it'd be part of like a cumulative case for the existence of God. But I think that there are also really interesting properties about beauty that people don't um, in the church think about when we're thinking about beauty. So I'll give you one example. And I call this the transmogrification effect. So transmogrification means um, like a surprising sort of change or a surprising sort of transformation, some sort of like terraforming. On, deep on the inside. Now, when you when I think about this, when we have an encounter with beauty, so suppose you were to go to the British uh, Museum or the National Gallery, or you're like Henry uh, Nouwen that goes to St. Petersburg in 1986 and looks at The Prodigal Son by Rembrandt, you can walk away a different person to some degree. You encounter beauty one way and you walk away to some degree, a different human being. And I think that this is a bit of a foretaste of what theologians like Aquinas called it, beautific vision. So beautific vision is once you see God um, in all God's glory, um, post-mortem, after, after death, then you will be completed. Um, your, your transformation, your sanctification process will be completed once you see him. Uh, w- when we see him, we will be like him for we see him as he is. Um, is what 1 John 3, 32, uh, 3, 2 says. 
when we encounter beauty in our world, I think we're getting a foretaste of that beautific vision. And I call that the transmogrification effect. So I'm just writing some stuff like that, just trying to tease out what's some like cool things about beauty that we're not thinking about, but can really help us as we're thinking about discipleship, apologetics, and our own walk with Jesus. I love that. So when, when's it, when will we see that book? When will it be? <laughs> uh maybe a year let's see i'm also working on phd proposal so uh concurrently so i'm i cut my hands full so i don't want to promise anything all right coming at some point in the future yeah um but i, d- I just wanted to cut because it sounded very it sounded fascinating so i think you know let's look out for that but we we want to talk about something specific today sure. um and it is an apologetics question um because why wouldn't we ask you that um, and it's it's really it's a question about the God that we meet or seem to see revealed through the whole sweep of Scripture. And it's quite this is quite a common argument that you would hear from young people, um, but also one that we might wrestle with ourselves as, as youth ministers, um, that the God we meet in the um, Old Testament uh, is very different, different from the um, Jesus that we meet in the mm-hmm. new. So that I guess the first question is, um, is God inconsistent? And if not, it, you know, why does he appear to be to us? Yeah. So there's a couple of different things here. If, if whoever's listening has thought this sort of way or encountered it, um, this isn't anything that's particularly new, as you said. So you could trace this back all the way to Marcionism, uh, that, that early church father that wanted to, well, he, he actually thought the God of the Old Testament was an evil God. And he thought that Christians going forward should um, uh, not, not have the same sort of standard uh, of viewing the Old Testament or the Tanakh as authoritative um, as, as a lot of his contemporaries would have thought. And ultimately that was deemed heretical. Uh, but we also see it nowadays with um, certain American pastors, like an Andy Stanley, for example, who would advocate for the position of unhitching uh, Christianity from the Old Testament. And I don't think it's that Andy Stanley thinks the same as Marcion, that this is a false god or an evil god, but rather is motivated more missiologically. So for the sake of evangelism and reaching the next generation, Maybe there just needs to be a, um, a dialing back on the in, uh, the preaching of the Old Testament from the pulpit and more focusing on uh, the New Testament, having that Christocentric sort of um, approach to um, pulpit preaching. So, yeah, man, I, I, I hear those sorts of things. I think they're unfortunate because I just don't think the New Testament authors seen things that way. I think that if you read the Gospel of Mark, for example, you get to ver- you can't get past the second verse of the first chapter of the Gospel of Mark, um, which is already making hyperlinks to um, Isaiah, um, uh, Micah, and other Old Testament prophets. So I think that there is. So okay, let me say it like this. I think that from the pulpit there has been, and this is not trying to throw shade at any pastors or anyone that's just trying to do things. Um, there's been a, a, an emphasis on certain aspects of Jesus. So commonly, you know, some people will say the meek and mild side, the, the Jesus, that's, that's love. And, and Jesus is fundamentally love. And Jesus 
I love Dane Ortland's book, Gentle and Lowly. I don't know if you read that, right? Where he, where he quotes his dad, Ray Ortland, who's quoting Charles Spurgeon, who says, it's the only uh, piece of scripture, Matthew eleven twenty eight, where it reveals God's heart, he, where he pulls back the veil and says, this is exactly who I am, gentle and lowly. So I think that that's right, that we do make this emphasis from the pulpit on, on Jesus's character that way. But what I don't see as much of is the other side of Jesus's character, which isn't like not love or not gentle or not lowly, but is of a Jesus who, for example, in, in um, John chapter two, where he is perfectly comfortable meeting an injustice and flipping tables over in the temple, you know, making a, a whip out of five cords and driving out those who are seeking to corrupt um, that which is holy. And I'm seeing that that's a part of what's going on within some of this dialogue. So there's that emphasis. I think there's that lopsided emphasis on the pulpit. Okay. The other side of it is, is um, if you are, if you're getting a fuller picture of who Jesus is, that is both unwilling to, to break a bruised reed, but at the same time, willing to up and tables of those in the temple that are corrupting the temple. I think you're getting a fuller picture of who Jesus is and therefore a fuller picture of who God is. And with a fuller picture of who God is, you will see less inconsistencies between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament, same God. That's certainly how the New Testament um, writers perceive things. And they go to great lengths to try to underscore this. So for example, uh, when Jesus is standing in front of Jerusalem and he begins weeping over the city and he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I've longed to gather you as a mother hen gather, gathers her chicks. This is a direct um, uh, image that's pulled out of the Old Testament. So New Testament authors see this deep connection between who Jesus is um, and the God of Israel, the God of the Old Testament. So that's the beginning of an answer. Yeah, no, great. That, um, and that helps with the consistency question. But I guess that doesn't necessarily answer the question of why the Old Testament God, you know, maybe Jesus is, is just the same as the Old Testament God, but the God we meet in the Old Testament, there's some problematic passages to our eyes. Yeah. There's some things that we see um, where, you know, like we're going to talk, I think, about the book of Joshua here. But, yeah. um, you know, God seems to be warring, picking sides, doesn't seem to care about the doesn't seem to care about the other side. Uh, there is a genocide argument around yeah. Joshua. Um, and, and so there's this, you know, people might say, um, you know, this how is this the God of love? This doesn't make sense. How yeah. is this a God of love? So. How do you deal with that? So, yeah, this is a good point. So this would be my next step in the response, which I think that these are great questions. I think if we read the Tanakh, the Old Testament, in isolation, so like you're reading certain, by that I mean reading certain books just in and of themselves, you can be tempted to, to go down that line of thinking. But if you were to read it in its context, in the broad sweep of, uh, the Old Testament from um, Genesis to Malachi, I I would struggle to get that same sort of, oh, God is just a God of war sort of image. So for example, when you read Hosea, 
you see this God that his whole being is literally churning on the inside of him uh, with compassion and longing for a people who have been nothing but stiff-necked towards him. Or you read the book of Jonah, where you see God who has every right to exercise judgment on evil and injustice, which is a good thing. It's in alignment with who God has, is because he is, is fundamentally good. But you see this God that is struggling to try to rescue these people that are acting evil and unjustly. Or you think of, you can go all the way back to the beginning of Genesis, where you see this, I love Tim Mackey's phrase, this royal artist who's just spilling into creation his, his love and creativity and goodness and life and all of these beautiful things and creating human beings and longing for and seeking relationship with other you know, sentient beings and so on. So I think if, yeah, if you read, if you read something like Joshua by itself, I think you're going to miss all of these other facets in the same way that if you were to just talk to me on a particular day, you might miss facets of who Alonzo is. And uh, just very last point, if you don't read uh, Joshua, even with, so, so the, in the Tanakh, the Tanakh's broken up into a few different like uh, groupings of genres. The Tanakh, um, sorry, and, and, and Joshua comes right after Torah. And in Torah, we're seeing, we're seeing, um, you know, uh, God creating the world, and then he's making covenant with Abraham and so on. And then they, they end up in Egypt, and they end up enslaved. But the, the story in Exodus of the Hebrews enslaved for 400 years, I think is a critical sort of hermeneutical first step in understanding Joshua. Because what we're seeing in, in uh, Exodus is a people that are being oppressed who are suffering and crying out for liberation. And Yahweh, remembering his promise all the way back to Abraham, is determined to rescue his people from this unjust slavery by the superpower Egypt. And so if you have that in the background of your thinking as you're approaching Joshua, I don't think you can just say, oh, this is some wicked warlord that's just commanding genocide. I think a fuller picture is, is like, this is a God that is intensely for justice, intensely for, uh, for good, and is on a particular trajectory according to the storyline. And I think that's reading the Bible and just trying to be fair. I think that this is a fair approach. What, what do you think, Martin? Well, I just I want to push back a little bit Please on the do. brutality. Just so you mentioned some examples there, you know, um, the Exodus begins with the slaughter of Egyptian firstborn. Yeah. Uh, at the hand of God. You know, Hosea is, I see that it's a, what it's a picture of, but there's also a literal man and woman situation that seems very brutal. What happens with Hosea and his wife. Mm-hmm. Um and and then you know the, the the actual genocides that happen in Joshua, there are actual acts of brutality that take place. Now, it might be that just we come to the Bible, every every generation reads it through its cultural lens. You know, we are coming with a very specific cultural lens now and reading these things, um, and we may be finding things difficult that people before us haven't. 
but but there is still some brutality there in at God's hand to to sort of try and explain. And I I can imagine that could stump some some. I mean, it would stump me. Um, but you know, if a young person came to me and asked me about you know, well, this seems awful that this happens and God did it. Yeah. What What do we say? How do we yeah. explain that? So this is interesting because I felt the exact same way when I started my theological education. So I had this Old Testament professor. Um, her name is Jenny Williams. And she's just so sweet, salt of the earth kind of lady. And I just, as I was beginning my, my uh, education, I was like, oh, I should read through the Bible from start to finish again, just kind of refresh my memory. And I remember coming across some of these particular passages that were just prima facie horrific. Um, and I remember sitting down with her in uh, our cafeteria. I don't know what you guys call it over here. I'm learning yeah, more. And, that. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I'm learning more and more. Like my whole life, I thought everyone said X's and O's. You guys don't say X's and O's, do you? Absolutely not. I've never <laughs> heard of that in my life. It's like crosses and something. Noughts and crosses. Yeah, yeah, there you go. <laughs> so I'm already learning, like we're, we speak the same language, but already divided. Um, so as I, yeah, as I was saying, um, I sat down in the cafeteria and I'm like, just very bluntly, like why on earth would these passages be in here? These just seem horrifying to me. And she was so kind and sat down, like each, each we did this multiple occasions, but each time she would just sat, sit down and just give me the, the context of what's going on in each one of them. So like shout out Jenny Williams. When you're bringing up some of these issues, I would encourage each listener to go and do a deep dive on each and every one of them. Um, and I found these to be tremendous uh, faith building exercises as I dug into various ones. So for example, um, the, the one that you had mentioned first was in Exodus. So at the beginning, the Hebrew babies, so Egypt is, uh, what's a good word for this? The superpower Egypt is doing a slow genocide on the Hebrew people. They're becoming too numerous. Pharaoh's a bit concerned. And so he says, kill all the male uh, firstborns. Yeah. And so they proceed to do that. And this is like really problematic. And so I'm seeing this horrifying injustice going on on the, at the hands of the superpower okay when you go through the various plagues there's 10 of them in total and 10 significant 10 is a number of testing and so on in the bible um at the very end we will see something it, almost like a mirroring of yahweh saying um the firstborn male of the egyptians i'm going to wipe out and so i think if we on like the surface level this can seem yeah, I totally understand. I, 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 again, I sat down with my professor and said, what the heck is going on here? Um, here's a couple of things I think that's worth considering that make it, make it different. Um, one, Pharaoh doesn't have the same rights over life that Yahweh has. As the creator of life, uh, Yahweh has certain authority and rights that Pharaoh just doesn't get to enjoy. So for example, um, if I, Alonzo, uh, give you, Martin, a 20-pound note, um, 
I, I can do that and you would accept it, hopefully. And then I can give you another one. Oh, yes. And, yeah, right. And uh, I can give you another one and another one and another one and so on and so on. But if I choose to stop, you can't say, hey, Alonso, that's, that's being unfair. Why are you stopping giving me this 20 pound note, these 20 pound notes every day? It's, it's my prerogative to, to give that sort of thing. And when I stop, I have every right to stop. And I, I look at God um, in the same sort of way. God, out of his sheer goodness and grace, gives life to human beings and has at any point the right to, to cease. And at, moreover, has the right to, to judge. And judgment, I don't think, is a bad thing. I think judgment is a good thing. Anyone that suffered injustice knows that justice, uh, that judgment, God is judge, is a tremendous amount of a source of hope. But still, okay, you could still push back and say, like, okay, well, what's going on exactly with these, with the Egyptian firstborns? Okay, think about it like this. When Pharaoh executes judgment on the Hebrew people, he's already out of his rights. And as he does it, leaves no room for mercy. There's no um, get out clause that's built in. It's just systemic, systematic eradication of a people group. By contrast, when you look at the, uh, the last plague that Yahweh um, deploys, there is within this, this judgment that God has every right to do, there is built in to judgment mercy. And the mercy is, all you have to do is take the blood of the lamb, put it on your doorpost, the destroyer will pass by your home. So even though superficially, I think they look very similar, I think fundamentally, as we probe down deeper, they are completely different. What, what, do, you, what do you think? Feel free to push back. Yeah, no, I get, I get it. I think that is the, um, the challenge is, I guess we, we need to encourage young people and we need to encourage ourselves to read more deeply you know that the scriptures are uh you know in some ways simple enough that a child can understand but also the depth if we really get into some of the more complex and difficult stuff uh people spend their lives and and don't get anywhere near the end of studying yeah. um the scriptures we're, we're nearly out of time but um but I, i'd just love to ask you you know you talk about um fostering a love for the whole of scripture of, of, you know, reading the whole thing, of holding the whole story. How do you think we, we help young people to do that? How do you help, think we help young people to uh, fall in love with, with Scripture? And I guess the little kicker is, especially when we know there's going to be some tough stuff in there that they're not going to easily understand. I think the onus is on us. It's like, if I'm a youth pastor um, and I don't love the Scriptures, then how on earth can we expect our young people to love our scriptures? Or if I'm a parent, how can I expect my child to love the scriptures if I don't love the scriptures? I think first and foremost, it falls on us to um, take the time uh, to, to pray and to fall in love with the scriptures ourselves. And there are so many great tools out there to help nowadays, whether it's Bible teachers or the Bible Project, or all of these sorts of things that are available, podcasts that will um, help us, A, to actually go through the Bible and get 
okay, what's like at a meta level perspective, what's going on exactly? Um, and also to help us to understand some of these problematic passages. Like you think of guys like Paul Copan, for example. Um, he's an Old Testament uh, scholar and philosopher. He wrote books like The Moral Monster, Is God a Vindictive Bully? Uh, Did God Create, uh, Did God Command Genocide? All Those are three distinct books. You can you can go and you can read and they're accessible. Um, so you can use resources like that to a fall in love with the Bible, like your Bible project. And then there's also resources out there. Um, Aka has some great resources. That's where I work. Um, if you need some like apologetic help, like just type you know the Aka dot o r g. Great resources there. There's just lots of stuff to help you out there. But I would just really encourage you um, if there's if if our young people are going to fall in love with the Bible, we have to fall in love with the Bible. If we're not feeling in love with the Bible, there are tons of resources. But also, just if this was me, I'd be crying out to God, um, please help me to fall in love with your word. I, I want to. Um, what does Peter say to, to Jesus uh, when, when, when things get really hard? And uh, Jesus says, uh, you know, are you guys going to turn away as well? And Peter says to them, God, where are we going to, uh, he says, Jesus, where are we going to turn? You have the words of eternal life. And if that's true, which I believe it is, then yeah, praying to God that God, like, help me to fall in love with the scriptures. These are the words of eternal life, and I want to know them better. Yeah, that's, that's, that would be my beginning that's of great. an answer. And, I, and And I'm sure anyone listening to this, you know, it's very hard not to go straight from this podcast to open the Bible and start looking some of this stuff up. Um, so thank you for just getting us excited and inspired again. Um, thanks for taking the time to answer some really, maybe some of the toughest questions you could ask, let alone in this season. Uh, it's been great getting to know you a little bit, Alonso. I'm sure thank we're going to see lots more of you. Thank you so much. I loved that interview, Martin. I think that's great. And I hope I hope we have more chats with him in the future about this kind of stuff. Because it feels like you guys sort of opened up a can of worms and there's more to there's more to explore that. I mean, I'd love to turn that question back to you. How mm. how do we foster in young people a love of the I mean an interest in the Bible? The whole Bible. Let, yeah, yeah, whole Bible, let alone a love of the Bible. Yeah, yeah. Well, producer Dave, who won't speak on air, maybe one week he will. Oh, let's try. But uh, he uh, he just he just shared a piece of wisdom that had been imparted to him on Instagram on Instagram, <laughs> which he wasn't. To be fair, he wasn't sure if he'd uh, if Made he agreed. No, he wasn't sure if he agreed with it or not. Oh, I see. Okay. But he said uh, he said the best way to make someone hungry is to eat a meal in front of them, mm. um, which is an interesting metaphor metaphor for um, for how we deal with the bar because. It's a very kind of obvious thing to say, but also it's one of those things that's really obvious and oft repeated, but also I'm not sure we can still heed it, mm. um, which is how do we expect young people to feel excited about the Bible if we're not excited mm. about the Bible? Mm. And um, I think, you know, I know there was a real aha moment in my youth ministry when I, my relationship with the Bible flipped. And I'll tell you what, not coincidentally, that's been also the time when young people around me have been more interested in yeah. reading the Bible. So I think there is, 
Dave, I'm going to give it to your Instagram quote person. It wasn't Instagram, was, was it? That, we're just, we're just, just some bloke. Fabricating it. Is that a bloke? It's a woman. Woman? Woman, definitely a woman. Dave, no, no, you're no, allowed definitely. to nod to us. You have to speak. <laughs> He's like his mouth. He's a man. I don't know. But I mean, when Dave first said it, my initial thought was, no, I, if someone's got disgusting eating habits, oh, I yeah. don't. But then actually that does translate in the metaphor because if our way of handling scripture is as a proof text, yes, like I think this and Jesus said this and guess what? It matches. Yeah. And I will pull it out of context and you'll have no loudly. idea. Yeah, yeah, that's basically true. So my first date with Jason, who is now my husband, reader, I married him, for those of you literally doing out there. Um, we went to an Indian restaurant and my husband has disgusting food habits. And uh, we were eating a curry and he got some sagaloo on his cheek. And I was Did like, he have a beard at the time? No, he did didn't he was clean shaven oh, so it's no. quite a lot of cheek and I was trying to like get his attention. Is this your why. first date? Our first date. I don't know why because we were good mates. I don't know why I went all coy but I was trying to sort of get him to like brush it away without I mean now I'd be like oi food in your face mate but then I was like trying to and he went eventually he got it and went oh thank you put his finger in the food and did it on the other side <laughs> so that's it on both cheeks. and that's how you fell in love <laughs> that's how we fell in love but actually how we handle scriptures and my bible is actually just sat there on the table isn't that oh, nice oh well done and look you've done that thing of putting it through the tumble dryer so it looks really <laughs> well so read fancy. but one of my practices at the moment is when I'm with young people and we're talking about Jesus and faith or I'm preaching, I'm holding the Bible and I'm reading yeah. from it. And again, it's not superstitious. It's not to be like, therefore, it's more holy or therefore they understand that this is the word of God. It, I don't, it doesn't work like that. But yeah. I feel if this helps me ground that what I'm saying, it, it it's a revelation of the Holy Spirit and it's the word of God. And mm. there's something that God does within this that's exciting. Yeah. So you're modeling it all the way. Try, yeah, trying to and struggling. You know, there are passages in Scripture I find so hard. And did, did you always like the Bible or did you have a little moment where it turned for you? I, I think probably I had moments. Because I think, I think I put the way in for me and probably like every other child growing up in the faith is you love a few stories, don't you? Yeah. And you meet, you meet Jesus in that and then your you own understanding of Jesus has to grow. But I, I do find that if I give myself space to dig like minor stories, at the moment I'm reading in Samuel where... God calls Saul to be king. And I'm just at the moment allowing myself to get a little bit obsessed about that story because it's all about flipping donkeys. Mm. So, and I have a little giggle because I think this is the first king of Israel and the the main bit of this story is Saul looking for dumb donkeys. And mm. I, is that God saying, you don't need a king, you're such a bunch of donkeys, you know? But it's, <laughs> so, so I'm just allowing myself to do some nuts exegesis and having a yeah. bit of fun with it and enjoying being a bit curious about the narrative and just seeing where it takes me. And that's, that's okay, because I think, we can handle scripture like that. I used to think that you had to kind of receive scripture with this kind of ah, yeah, yeah. sound behind it and it had to all be God breathed in a kind of, you can't ask questions and you have to just download it. Whereas now I'm like, it's brilliant, it's really mm. fun mm. and it's complex. There's some bits I find so hard. Mm. I don't know how to equate mm. that with that, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna roll my sleeves up and spend the rest of my life with my hands deep in this book, you know, mm. because this is my life. This is who I am and this is who Christ how I often meet Christ. I meet him through these these pages. I think if we launched a spin-off podcast called Rachel Gardner's Nuts Exegesis, <laughs> people would love it. This could be our bonus content to get one person on Patreon. That's it. That's what we're going for. So, um, look, I hope you found that helpful as you continue your own wrestling match with scripture. Um, this is the last of our standard interview editions, but coming next week, Whoa. the first part of our exclusive season finale and we're doing a two-parter 
How exciting. Like a, like a TV show. A two-part season finale. But the first part comes next week. We'll see you then. Hi, my name is Gillian. I had a fab youth worker called Steve, who is a bit of a hero of mine. When my parents split up, I was 12 years old, and it was a huge knock to our whole family. But I felt really lost amongst lots of friends who had seemingly happy parents. Steve was just brilliant, and he spoke into this messy time of my life. He was an engaging leader at youth group on a Friday. He'd check in with me during the week, and, and occasionally we'd go out for an ice cream factory at Pizza Hut. I don't know if they still exist, but I loved the Jelly Tots. Thinking back, it was the consistent presence of someone who cared during a time that felt quite unstable, and that made me just feel loved and supported. And it's had a positive impact on me as Steve provided the space to ask questions about what was going on, and it meant I didn't keep any of my darker thoughts locked away. So I've continued to seek out people I trust like Steve as he was such a brilliant role model and it was just good for my self-esteem. My money don't jiggle jiggle it folds i like to see you wiggle wiggle for sure it makes me want to dribble dribble you know riding in my fiat you really have to see it six feet two in a compact no slack but luckily the seats go back i got a knack to relax in my mind sipping some red red wine